this was his policy, then when he's receiving this judgment from these religious leaders, he would have just said, hey, don't judge me. Like, you're being judgy, stop judging. Only God can judge me, right? Only my father can judge me. Or, or what if his policy was, you can judge if you want, you just can't judge me. But that's not what Jesus says here. It's not what he says at all. He says to these religious leaders, look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. In other words, look at this. Jesus isn't upset that they're judging. He's upset that they're doing it wrong. He's not upset that they're judging. He's upset that they are doing it wrong. And what this points to is that there are, there, there, there's, there's good judgment and there's bad judgment. So, so there's, there's a helpful, healthy, appropriate way to judge. And then there is an un, unhelpful, unhealthy, inappropriate way to judge. And it's important to make the distinction. We gotta understand the difference. Well, hey, we are in uh, week two of a, uh, a teaching series I started last week called Not True. And uh, it's a series really built on uh, this idea that it seems like so much of our thinking about life, uh, our thoughts are often held together by some short, sort of catchy, uh, sort of superstitious, fortune cookie type statements uh, that we say that we repeat often in an effort to really sort of make sense of life. You know, um, we say things like, everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, uh, just follow your heart. Uh, Only God can judge me. All sin is basically the same, right? Or God will never give you more than you can handle. We say things like these, like cliches. We repeat them often. And uh, we post them, we pass them along. Like we see little memes or quotes like that reinforce them. And we just like, yeah, that sounds good. And we send it out there. And we say them often, really trying to like make ourselves uh, kind of feel, feel good. They're strangely comforting, aren't they, at times? We're like, yeah, it makes sense. And um, I, think, I think because they are so popular, so prevalent, so familiar, you know, we can oftentimes just assume that they're from the Bible, that they're from Scripture. But, but are they? Are they? And, and really the, the, the series that we're in is built really on this question. What if some of the statements that we so often repeat are actually based on a misunderstanding? What if God never said that? And what if they're not true? What if they're not true? And so in, in the month of September, what we're going to be doing here is just tackling a handful of Christian cliches. And last Sunday, uh, we, we tackled the first one, which was uh, everything happens for a reason. I just encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and get caught up online. You can, you can check that out there. Uh, today, I want us to dig into the next uh, cliche, and that is this one, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. Very common, very familiar cliche that is used all the time. Like, we hear it everywhere. Like, you can't judge me, Right? Like, don't judge me. Only God can judge me, right? And as a result of, like, its frequent use, like, people saying it all the time, I think it's safe to say that no one likes to be judged. I don't know of anyone sitting around, like, hoping to be judged today, right? Now, if that's you, if by some chance you like being judged, that's weird, right? That's weird, I think the reason why this cliche is so popular and the reason why no one likes to be judged is because just about everyone knows what it's like to be judged. You know? Like, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced what it's like to be judged? Have you 
ever felt that sinking feeling in your gut that often comes when you learn that someone has already made a decision about who they think you are? And they don't really know you, and they don't have all the information, and they don't know the whole situation, and yet it sure feels to you like they've already made up their mind about you? Have you ever, you ever experienced something like this? You ever been there? I think part of the reason why this phrase, only God can judge me, is so interesting is, is because when you ask people who aren't in church what they think of Christians, one of the most common answers would likely be that Christians are pretty judgy. An unfortunate stereotype that has stuck, right? Now, I got to be honest with you this morning because the truth really is that Christians are judgy. And the reason why they're judgy is because everyone is judgy. It's part of the human condition. In fact, I would say that this tendency to judge others is not really a specific Christian issue. It's, it's really on a broader scale. It's a human issue. And this is just the way we are. It's the way people are. We do this impulsively, and at times we do this unintentionally. You ever known somebody who had an opinion that they, they, they just... Uh, uh, who never had an opinion that they weren't willing to say? You, you ever know somebody like that? Just like every, every opinion they have, they're, just, they're, they're happy to share it with you. How many of y'all would admit that you are that person? Anybody? Come on, I, I, come on. The lights are a little down. I can't see all the honesty in the room. I think everywhere we look, there are so many opinions that are now shared in many different ways with unprecedented frequency that previous generations would have never imagined possible. Social media has given us an opportunity to have an opinion about everything, views that we just want to express. And I think most of us have become so conditioned to giving our opinion all the time that we can often insert ourselves into different situations whether or not those situations have anything to do with us. I think it's safe to say that we are a people who have tons of opinions. We have opinions about different things. We certainly have opinions about people. We have opinions about each other. Even when we're not trying to have opinions about each other, we do. And I think that that's why this phrase, only God can judge me, is, is so powerful. I think we can gravitate towards it because it's, there's part of us that doesn't want people to do to us what we at times do to them secretly passing judgment, making decisions about people without all the facts, making evaluations. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this. I think that because this phrase, only God can judge me, is echoed so often and invokes the name of God, we can over time begin to think that this is something Jesus or the Apostle Paul said. Where's that verse again? Right? But Truthfully, like, this isn't something that they said. This is actually something that Tupac said. Right? Right, this is something Tupac said. This is from a rap album, everybody. You can Google it. I wouldn't suggest Googling it because I'm pretty sure that these are the only clean lyrics in the whole song. But, uh, but this is something Tupac said, right? And even though Tupac popularized this phrase in the 90s, uh, we assume that it comes from the Bible. All right, rest in peace, this guy. He... I think because in a way, 
this phrase, only God can judge me, it does sort of stem from something that Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. This phrase does stem from a verse that has become the most popularly quoted verse of the Bible in our modern culture, easily eclipsing John 3.16. Easily, hands down. And it's Matthew 7.1, which says, do not judge. Right? Easily the most quoted scripture amongst Christians and non-Christians alike. And so maybe some of you are looking at this verse and, and you're thinking to yourself that this seems pretty straightforward. All right, we're not, not supposed to judge. The problem is that there's more to read, right? This isn't the entire passage. This isn't the entire picture of what Scripture has to say on this topic. But I think this is how we can be. I think this is how we are sometimes, right? We can be people who only read so far. We can oftentimes gravitate towards an idea that we want to believe, we want to be true, and then we go looking for some justification to that belief, and it can be very easy to find something and sort of lift it out of the pages of Scripture, lift it out of context, run with it in a way that feels good to us even. But look at the rest of the verse. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, looking at these two verses, it can seem to some of us that Jesus is telling us to never judge anyone. It can seem to us that Tupac got it right, right? That this lyric is a solid paraphrase, right? That it's a solid interpretation of, of, uh, uh, of, of this verse, an interpretation that I, think mo- that I think most of us gravitate towards when we read verses like these that we are not uh, to judge, but, but I, think, I think that there's, there's a huge misunderstanding about, about this. I, I think, I think that, that, that there's a huge um, misunderstanding of what the Bible talks about when it, when it talks about judging versus what culture says right now about what it means to judge. In fact, look at this thought. I think that in our culture, do not judge is taken to mean don't ever say anything to anyone that might make them feel uncomfortable for any reason. Like, that's really what it means in our culture, in our society, to Judge. This is what it feels like people are really saying when they say, hey, don't judge, don't judge me. Only God can judge me, right? And the reason we're drawn to this type of interpretation is because it lines up pretty close to the core values of our, of our current culture. In fact, if, if we were to do a general overview of, of culture, like regardless of political affiliation, if we were to uh, just do this overview to try to understand the general philosophy of society as it is today, I think we would find three very specific values that we seem to have built our entire culture on. Let me show them to you. You can uh, throw them on the screen. These three, individualism, number one, which is where everyone should really be able to do whatever they want regardless of how it impacts anyone around them. That's radical individualism, right? This is our society's built on this. Like you do you. Like like whatever whatever you want to do, you do it. And And then number two is relativism. So what's right and wrong for someone is entirely dependent on their specific situation and surroundings. So there's no absolute truth. There's nothing that is true for everyone at all time. Truth is relative, it's, it's situational. And then number three is tolerance, where everyone should not just accept, but approve of, applaud, and advocate for every choice anyone else makes. It seems like this is how our culture is built right now. Right? It's how society Roles And when you look at all three of these, like all three of these values, they are very Western, they are very modern, and specifically they are very American. 
which means that these are not the societal constructs that Jesus lived by. They are not the ethics or the value system that the early church lived by or that the New Testament authors wrote according to. In fact, as we look at the life of Jesus and look at the things that Jesus said and did, we can't help but come to this conclusion, if you're taking notes, that it is actually impossible to align yourself with the teachings of Jesus without making any moral judgments. You just can't do it. Right? Like at some point, we have to be willing to say that that is wrong and this is right. We have to be saying, at some point we have to get to the point where we say, that is no and this is yes. And where we draw those lines and how we draw those lines can feel complicated at times, especially when we are, you know, living in a society that, that is really built on, you know, uh, individualism, individualism, relativism, and tolerance. Anything goes, whatever you feel is just fine. How many of y'all have ever felt so strongly about something, got an opinion, and someone, someone says to you, well, man, that's just, that's, just, that's just your opinion. You're like, no, wait, what? You're like, you, you feel strongly trying to prove a point, and they're like, that's just, that's just your opinion. Like, and, and you ever felt that indignation rise up inside you to the point where you say something like, that's not just my opinion. That's God's opinion. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you ever just felt that? And so, so this, is, this is a really difficult place to kind of live in, and we can feel the tension, you know, of, of Matthew 7 that says, do not judge, and then also, like, like reading the scriptures, the gospels, and Jesus' teachings, and understanding that it's impossible to align with the teachings of Jesus without making any sort of moral judgments whatsoever. And so the question is, like, are we supposed to judge or not? Like, how do we do this? Like, like, like are, are we supposed to judge sometimes but not other times? You know, what are we supposed to do? And these are really, 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 really good questions to ask. And I think that anytime we're trying to figure out what God is saying in the scriptures, we want to ask a couple questions, okay? Anytime, anytime you're trying to figure out a topic or, 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 or a thought, like, like, like what does scripture really teach on this? We want to ask a couple questions. What is the context, number one? Okay, so when Jesus says these kinds of things, what does he say right before and what does he say right after? Who is he talking to? And what do these words mean in the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultural context, right? That's, we want to understand those things. What's the context? And then two, we want to know, is there anywhere else in Scripture that talks about the same subject, right? So, so it can help us when we do the answer that question or ask that question, it can help us to get a, a bigger picture view as, to, as opposed to one small quote in one place. Again, not, not wanting to just lift a thought out of, of Scripture and, and, and uh, observe it in, con, in, in uh, isolation, we want, to, we want to look at it in context, and then we want to know, does, this, does this, do the Scripture say anything else about this topic? Like, are there, are there multiple quotes about this in different places? And when we're talking about this particular idea of what it means to judge or uh, something or, or to judge someone, what, what you find is that Jesus does talk about this in other places, and he talks about it in different ways. He doesn't just talk about it in Matthew 7. And in fact, there's, there's one time where Jesus is confronted by uh, a handful of religious leaders. They want to call him out for something that he did um, that they don't think he should be doing, and they, they come to Jesus, they condemn him for it. And Jesus sort of gives this sassy response. Like, I, I kind of like that about Jesus, because he's, he's a little snippy with, like, religious leaders, which, uh, which I appreciate. You know, and, and, and Jesus, Jesus gives this, this a little bit of sass back to these guys, and, and, and he says this in John 7, 24. He says, he says to these guys, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Look beneath the surface so you can judge 
correctly. It's pretty interesting. Because you would think that if Jesus' policy was do not judge anyone ever for any reason under any condition, that he would have just said that here. Like he would, have just, he would have just said that. If this was his policy, then when he's receiving this judgment from these religious leaders, he would have just said, hey, don't judge me. Like, you're being judgy. Stop judging. Only God can judge me, right? Only my father can judge me. Or, or what if his policy was you can judge if you want, you just can't judge me. But that's not what Jesus says here. It's not what he says at all. He says to these religious leaders, look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. In other words, look at this. Jesus isn't upset that they're judging. He's upset that they're doing it wrong. He's not upset that they're judging. He's upset that they are doing it wrong. And what this points to is that there are, there, there, there's, there's good judgment and there's bad judgment. Right? Are you here? Are you with me? All right, I'm going to explain this. We're going to unpack it, all right? But there, so, so there's, there's a helpful, healthy, appropriate way to judge and then there is an un, unhelpful, unhealthy, inappropriate way to judge, and it's important to make the distinction. We gotta understand the difference. In fact, I would say that it's a good guiding principle around this, uh, this subject to look at, at, at basically this rule, if, if you wanna take notes here, and that is this. It's that God's role is to judge who's good. That's his job. He determines. Like, like uh, this separating the sheep from the goats, who is good, who... Who has really put their faith in Jesus and has, you know, eternal security in heaven someday? It's God's role to judge who's good, but our role is to use good judgment. And at times we're called to confront for sure, but never to condemn, right? Never to condemn, never to determine ourselves whether or not someone is good. There are moments in which Jesus actually seems to encourage us to judge. Crazy. Moments where he insists that we judge certain things, but, but that, that's, that's, that's confusing because, like, how do, we, how do we do this? And, and what does it actually mean to judge correctly? Because there's clearly evidence of good judgment versus bad judgment. Like, like what does it mean to actually confront someone well? What does good, healthy Christian confrontation actually look like? Most of us have no clue. Right, because we've never seen confrontation done well. Like all of us know <laughs> like what bullying looks like. We've seen what condemnation is. But most of us have never seen a healthy confrontation. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you an example of what healthy confrontation can and probably should look like from the book of, of Galatians. Now Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul where he writes about this really, really intense confrontation between himself uh, as one of the premier evangelists and missionaries of the day, and Peter, who is the head of the church and uh, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, right? So it's a, in terms of like our forefathers of the Christian faith, uh, these, are, these are guys who are like on Mount Rushmore, and uh, they, they are uh, engaged in a really intense conflict. Paul tells us about this time where he and Peter uh, mix it up, where they get into it. He says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 uh, through 13. Uh, Paul says, when Peter came to Antioch, okay, so Antioch uh, was outside of Israel, right? It, it was in the Mediterranean realm. So this is, um, th this is a, a, you know, really like the first Gentile church that was established outside of Israel. And this is a church that, that Paul planted. He was a church planner 
planted many churches all throughout the Mediterranean realm. And this is maybe the most significant, most famous church uh, that we have in the New Testament, the church in Antioch. So it says when Peter, who was from Jerusalem, who's a Jew, okay, he's the head of the church, when he came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before, certain men came from James, so James is the brother of Jesus, and he, he is, is uh, really the one who, is, who oversees the church in Jerusalem, and, uh, and he sent some men up to Antioch as well. So it says, before certain men came from James, he, uh, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. Okay? These are, these are non-Jewish converts. That's what Jews are, right? Or, or Gentiles are. It says, but when they arrived, right, when these men from Jerusalem arrived, these Jewish Christians, uh, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Some of you are lost, and that's all right, okay? I get it. I get it. You had no idea we were going to talk about circumcision this morning, and uh, now you're wide awake. Um, if you aren't sure what, what Paul's uh, talking about here, l- let me give you some of the backstory so you can be clued in on the drama. There's actually significant drama that's happening in this story. So in context, right, Christianity originally began uh, in the first century, right, as as an exclusively Jewish movement, okay? So in the beginning, Christianity, it wasn't even called that, it was called the followers of the way, the way of Jesus. Uh, It was considered a sect or a branch of Judaism. In fact, the the earliest followers uh, really didn't, didn't imagine that this was going to require them to leave Judaism. They, they, they actually uh, felt like um, this was like the fulfillment to their faith. And, and so they were very much still adhering to the customs and the regulations and, and, and the things of, of uh, uh, Judaism while still following in the way of Jesus. But when, when, you, when you read about all this, God repeatedly tries to make it clear that what he was doing was for everyone everywhere. It wasn't just for the Jews. That this invitation to life through Jesus was meant to extend beyond the Jews and be made available to the entire world. And so these early followers of Jesus, who were also Jewish and had grown up Jewish, they understood this idea philosophically. Like, how many y'all know it's like one thing to understand something philosophically and it's another thing to like practice it and walk it out well. It was really, really hard for them to let go of certain Jewish-specific expectations. And as a result, they would insist that these non-Jewish converts, these Gentiles, hold to these same Jewish customs, practicing all of their Jewish religious rules. And so these Gentiles who were not Jewish but were coming to faith in Jesus were viewed by many followers of Jesus in Jerusalem as sort of second-rate Christians because they weren't doing all the same things that they were doing, right? So we're keeping all of these regulations, and man, we're like extreme, all in, and, and those who are outside of, of, of Israel, those who are not Jewish and are coming to faith in Jesus, man, they're just getting in a lot easier. They're, they're kind of just, uh, just, just sort of going through the motions. They, they are second rate at best, And so, tensions are high, right? Drama is brewing and things come to a head because there is division happening in the church. 
You got like, you got division going on. And so what they do, the leaders of the church, they convene a council. And, and uh, the members of this council include Peter and James, kind of significant people, uh, a bunch of the original disciples, other leaders in the church, and Paul is also present. And at this meeting in Jerusalem, which, which is in, it's in Acts 15, it's, it's um, called the Jerusalem Council, they decide at this council that the non-Jewish converts, these Gentiles, they aren't to be required to do all of the Jewish customs. Like we shouldn't lay at that heavy burden or that heavy yoke on them. You know, all the rituals, all the things that the Jews were required to do under the law of Moses, that's not an obligation to the Gentiles. Because Jesus didn't come to sort of reignite Judaism, right? He came to do something new, something different. And it's important that these Gentiles are included in the new thing that Jesus has done. And and only be held responsible for the things that Jesus has really asked them to do. So this, this is kind of what's happening. And so to everyone's credit at this council, they actually all agree on this. Like they actually, they actually can understand like, like okay, maybe, maybe we've got it wrong here. Let's, let's not like be, be too difficult on the Gentile believers who are coming to faith. And so they move, they pledge to, to go forward and to do away with treating the non-Jewish converts differently or as second rate. Now this is great news, the story doesn't really end there. Sometime after this council in Jerusalem, Peter, who is the leader of the church, he decides to go on this trip to Antioch to visit his friend Paul. And while he's visiting the church there that is almost entirely made up of non-Jewish converts or Gentiles, he begins to interact with these people, right, enjoying their company and laughing together until James sends his friends from Jerusalem uh, to, to head to Antioch, and they arrive, and now they're all hanging out and because Peter knows that these men from Jerusalem are kind of traditional, you know, they, they, they keep to some of these, these Jewish customs, uh, he starts to get nervous about what they're going to think about him, kind of interacting and hanging out with all of these, these Gentile Christians. And so he starts treating the non-Jewish Christians differently than he just did five minutes earlier. The very thing that the Council of Jerusalem ruled was wrong and very anti-Jesus, Peter's now engaged in that. Paul sees this, and it doesn't sit well with him, right? And so he calls Peter out. He pulls him aside and lets him know that his reputation has become more important to him than doing what's right. Like, you care more about what these people think of you than, than, than about what Jesus thinks about you and about treating these Gentile believers right. And so Paul tells Peter that, that this is something that Peter himself uh, said was wrong, and is now doing, Paul tells Peter that his hypocrisy is influencing other people that look up to him. Like, like all the other the Jewish men who were there started doing the same thing. Even Barnabas was led astray by, by this because Peter did it. And Paul just decides, hey, this is a moment. I'm just going gonna, gonna to call Peter out on it. I'm not going to let this slide. And here's why I think this, this example is super helpful. This, this story is super helpful. It's because it shows us what it looks like to have a clean, helpful Christian confrontation. Essentially, the story tells us this, if you're taking notes, that you know, exercising good judgment involves confronting the right person about the right things in the right way. All three of those. The right person about the right things in the right way. Let me just uh, break this down. I'm going to talk about these three things for the rest of our time. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm actually getting, getting through this pretty quick, so that's great. Uh, for your sake. Um, exercising good judgment involves, number one, confronting uh, the right person. Confronting the right person. Now, the right person 
okay, in, in terms of a, of, of a, of a uh, healthy Christian uh, confrontation, the right person is a Christ follower, a Jesus follower that you actually have a close personal relationship with. That's the right person that you can confront. But the, this is what the Bible tells us. Right? There are all kinds of biblical evidence that show us that this is the type of person we are to confront if needed. Look what Paul says to the church in Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 5.12. Paul says this. He says, he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Right? So he's saying it's not my responsibility to judge people who, who aren't following Jesus, people who aren't in the church. He says, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those, who, those inside the church who are sinning. Well, how do we, what do we do with this verse? What do we do with this? And so, so Peter like, fits this description, doesn't he? Because Peter and, and Paul, they're both Jesus followers. They're church leaders. They're close friends. And so, so Peter is like the right kind of person for Paul to confront because he's, he's not an outsider, but he's, he's actually inside the church. And, and he's got some sin in his life. So Paul decides, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about it. And so if, look at this verse. Like, it's really interesting. Paul's really basically saying that it's absurd to expect someone who is not a Christian to act like a Christian. It's completely absurd. It doesn't make sense to expect someone who doesn't share your values to live according to your values. Are, are, are you with me? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so he's saying, like, hey, when there are people who share your same values, who have, who have, who have you know, uh, professed faith in Jesus, when there are people who have, who have, who have publicly been baptized uh, in, in front of witnesses, like, like so much of baptism is a request by the baptismal candidate to be held accountable for that decision to follow Jesus. It's part of it. It's not all of it, but it's part of it. Saying, hey, I'm, tr I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to follow Jesus with my life, and I want you to hold me to that standard. And, and so, like, like the model here is like, so then that's what we do. We hold each other accountable to the way of Jesus. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Now, interestingly, uh, Matthew 7, 3, and 4 are, are the immediate two verses after uh, 7, 1, and 2, where Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged, right? Then he goes into 3 and 4. He says, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. So it's really interesting. I don't want to, um, uh, you know, just, just break this apart too much. I want to just point out one word, and it's, it's on the, the second line here. It's, it's friend. Like, so, so Jesus is saying, like, like why, when, you, when you're confronting someone, why are you worrying about the speck in, in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Jesus makes it very clear that this confrontation is with a friend. It's the right, the right person is a friend. The confrontation, in order for a confrontation to be beneficial, I, I think that you should be in such a close relationship with that person that you see them like a brother or a sister and they see you the same way. Otherwise, there's no benefit. You don't have relational equity to address them uh, on anything that they're dealing with or struggling with. Like, they should be a friend. Look at, look at the side. Did you know that it's on the screen here, but do you know that Jesus gives no instruction on how to pick the speck out of the eye of a person you don't have a close relationship with? He doesn't give any, doesn't give any instruction on that. It's, it's, right? it's, it's not our, it's not our, our fight. It doesn't, now, now let, me, let me just explain something here, because I, I, I want to be, be very clear. Like, it doesn't mean that we don't confront issues in the broader, broader culture. It doesn't mean that we don't do that ever. But it means that we, we do so with a lot of gentleness and humility. 
It means that we do not expect certain things out of people who have not decided to follow Jesus. In verse five, Jesus says this. He says, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So, like, that's a, that's a tough one, right? Like, like you know, when, when, when you're seeing, like, like, issues in someone's life and you're like, man, I just want to let them know, like, this is wrong, it's not okay. Um, Jesus is saying, look, you got to get rid of, like, the stuff in your own life first. got to address yourself. Like, in other words, this is what I think. I think is a really, really good statement that oftentimes the person you need to confront is you, or the person you need to confront first is yourself. Confrontation should always begin with ourselves first. There should always be a sense of humility and gentleness when, when, when we feel like the Holy Spirit is asking us to confront someone or to talk to them about what's going on in their life. There should always be a sense of humility, like, like I know how wrong I am all the time. I know how much I mess up all the time. I know that I've got sin. I know all this stuff, and yet, and yet uh, uh, I, I feel like I'm supposed to do this, so God, would you first evaluate me and bring to the surface anything uh, in me that I don't see. And so, look, if, if we're gonna exercise good judgment, it, it involves confronting the right person, number one, and number two, confronting the right person about the right things. So the right things are anything that doesn't represent who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. So what do you, con- do you just confront anything in somebody that you don't like? No, <laughs> that's not all right. That's not okay. Uh, you know, just because they, uh, you know, have a different diet than you, don't, you don't tell them that's crazy that you eat impossible meat. Like, what are you doing? Like, uh, it's not what you get into. Uh, but you, you confront, like as Christians, we, we, we confront about the right thing. So, so as we're looking at, at, at like our friend's life, somebody that we're close to, and we're starting to see things that don't represent who Jesus is, don't represent what Jesus taught, those are the right things that, that we have conversation about. Right, those are the things that we, we come face to face on. Anything that doesn't represent who Jesus is and what Jesus taught in the life of someone who is a Christian who we have a close relationship with. Right? And this is why I, 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 get, I, get re- I really struggle sometimes with, you know, just like blasting certain thoughts out there on social media like, it's like, it's like I feel like so many Christians are just trying to pass through the internet. It's like, that's not where we, that's not where we should fight. Like, that's not where, that's not, we aren't called to that. We're, I mean, most of the people out there who are living in ways that you don't agree with have never, have never like, given any indication that, they, that they're trying to live in a way that you're okay with, right? And so we hold each other accountable to the standard of Jesus. We don't hold the world to the standard of Jesus. We hold each other to that standard. And that's what actually transforms families, and that's what actually transforms communities, right? When we all band together to live according to the way of Jesus. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, and he says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer, again, right, inside the church, another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. This is really good. You know, there, there, there can be times where we hear about some issues in someone's life and we just gotta, gotta confront them on them, gotta talk to them about it. It's really good to stop and pause and pray and say, God, like, search me. 
Because what happens is there's actually like a spiritual dynamic to where when you confront a, an issue in someone's life, you actually become vulnerable to, uh, to the temptation of the very same thing that they are caught up in. And what you see here is that Paul's issue with Peter, back to the story in Galatians 2, it's not one of personal preference. He's not just like, man, I don't like that. That's just not, I don't, I don't I, you know, I wish that you would handle that a little bit differently. That makes me uncomfortable. It's not an issue of just like, uh, man, I got a gut feeling on this that it's wrong. It's not that kind of thing. It, it's not even just an issue of, of different convictions. He's not going, man, like I, I believe this, and because I believe this, everyone should, should, should live this way. It's not like somebody who says, you know, um, I, I don't consume this type of media, but you ever notice somebody who, who, who then tries to like, uh, put that burden on other people to live exactly like they live. Paul's not doing that here. He's not saying like, like what is a sin for me, you know, is, is a sin for you. He's saying, no, this is a sin for all of us. Like, it's not like this is just some personal conviction that I've decided to, to treat Gentiles the same as, as the Jews. He goes, no, 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 this is something we all decided on. The issue here is that Peter is doing the opposite of what he publicly told everyone that he believed. He said, this is what I believe. This is what I believe is right. This is what I believe Jesus wants us to do and how he wants us to treat other people. And he's not living like Jesus because something else really became more important, primarily his reputation. And so in terms of examining yourself, confronting yourself, and what the plank could really be in your own life, look at, look at this thought. I think that if the, same, if the thing you can't wait to call someone out on isn't something Jesus talked much about, tread lightly because it might be more your issue than theirs or God's. Just be careful. We tread lightly. Well, this is like a, it seems like a minor issue in the Bible. It seems like something that didn't get a lot of airtime. Let's just tread lightly. Let's, let's be humble. Let's be gentle. I think that as human beings in general, we have a habit of assuming that if we have an opinion, God too has that same opinion. We, we, we just assume this. We assume that he's politically aligned. We believe that our enemies are his enemies. Like, you know, this is what we believe about God. Just because, because I've, I've developed a strong opinion here, then uh, I'm sure that God feels that way. And over and over again in Scripture, what do we find out? We find out that God doesn't typically think about things the way that we do. And so this is why we tread lightly. And yet in this story, Peter still needed to be confronted about this thing in his life by this person in this moment. Peter needed this. Maybe you've had some moments like this too in your life where you were off track and, and, and you couldn't see it and you were in denial of it maybe and you needed the right person to confront you about a specific thing in a specific moment. And honestly, if you're looking backwards in your story, maybe you can even now acknowledge to yourself that had they not done that, you may not be where you are today. This is why I like Proverbs 27.6. It's really a tough verse, but it says, wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, like you and I need people around us with the courage to gently and humbly help us get back on the right path. So it's not just that, hey, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. That's actually not true. In fact, when we, when we, when we become followers of Jesus, we, we willingly are submitting ourselves to the church, which is the, the people of God. We're willingly saying, hey, I'm following Jesus too now. Look at my life and help keep me accountable to the way. 
So when we wandered off, we need people to help us get right, back on the right track, and usually it doesn't feel good, <laughs> right, at first. We like, you'll get the story of, of Peter and Paul. Like, you don't get this, um, uh, we don't get this idea from the text that after the conversation, uh, that the after conversation looked, uh, it, what it looked like in the story. We don't, we don't get an idea of, 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 of how things finished or ended Paul doesn't write that part down, but from everything we know in Scripture about Peter's personality, I, I don't know that he took it well initially, right? I mean, this is the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, who pulls out his sword and cuts the dude's ear off. You know, I mean, this is that guy. This is the guy that's like, I'll never, I'll never deny you uh, unless uh, I'm going to be associated with you. <laughs> then I'm going to do that three times. So, um... Right, this is a guy who, who I mean, he, he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. He, he's a very passionate person, uh, he, even uh, driven by anger at, at times, or that passion turns into anger. And so I don't know that when you look at this story that, that it's, uh, it, it's wrong to say that, that it's, it's pretty, pretty likely that he didn't take this very well at first. I don't know that when, when, when Paul opposed Peter to his face that, that, you know, that Peter immediately said, oh, man, you're so right, I'm so sorry. And yet this is still what Peter needed. It was a confrontation that woke him up to something that he needed to address in his life. Man, I love the second half of this verse in, in, in Proverbs 27, 6. Yeah, we still got it up here. Um, it says, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Because what it's really saying is that, everyone, uh, is, is that if everyone around you is kissing up to you, telling you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear, that those aren't really your friends. That's what this verse says. Right? They're not, those aren't your friends. In fact, I, I want to just give you a thought here today, um, if you're taking notes. If your immediate circle of friends never has tough conversations, they aren't your friends. They aren't your friends. No, it's really good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the one. No, it's It's true. This is what it looks like in, in Christian community. This is what it looks like as followers of Jesus. Sometimes we've got to just have a, like, a, like a what's up moment. What's going on, man? How you doing? Like, tell, talk to me about it. Proverbs 9, 8 through 6, or, or I'm sorry, 8 through 6, 8 through 9 uh, says, Do not bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. But correct the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous, and they will learn even more. I love that. I love that. It's so good. So in other words, if you take a note, look at this. One of the marks of a healthy, growing, mature Jesus follower is that they're confrontable. They're confrontable. And does that describe you? Does that describe me? Is it a good descriptor of you? Are you someone who is confrontable? Because this is the humility we're supposed to walk in, that we're not perfect, we don't have it all together, that we have blind spots, there are areas in our life that we can't see, but we've submitted ourselves to the body of Christ. We've submitted ourselves. We've asked these people to hold us accountable, and so am I confrontable in my life? And so, uh, look, when it comes to exercising good judgment, it involves confronting, number one, the right people, Number two, about the right things. And number three, in the right way. And the right way means you go straight to them and confront them clearly, face-to-face, 
key right here at the end, don't leave this part out, with gentleness and humility. To their face with gentleness and humility. Paul's like, I oppose Peter to his face. You know, like you get this kind of idea, like what's going on here? But it was with gentleness and humility. It's an important detail to the story that Paul lets us know that he opposed Peter to his face. You know, you know why this matters? You know why this is critical? Because he wants us to know that he didn't go around behind Peter's back talking to everyone else about him. Like he didn't do that. He's letting us know that he didn't try to onboard a bunch of people to his side, to his perspective ahead of time so that Peter could be outnumbered and really know how wrong he was. He didn't try to do that. Paul tells us that he confronted his friend face to face. Listen to me, this is Jesus 101, okay? This is Matthew 18. This is Jesus 101. Matthew 18, Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. You've won that person back. Because winning them back is the key. It's the goal. It's the key part of this verse. The key part of this verse is that you're winning them back. It's not that you are pointing out the offense. That's not the key. It's not that, you know, that you've just got something to say and get off your chest. The goal is to win them back. Look at this. The goal of good judgment is restoration, not condemnation. It's the goal. And this is why we have to check our heart when we want to confront someone about something in their life because the question that we have to ask ourselves is, is this, do I really want to see them restored to a relationship with me? They're gonna confront them. I'm gonna deal with them on their issue, but if I'm gonna do that, can I answer the Do I really want them to be restored, to be restored to a relationship with me? Do I wanna, really wanna see them restored to a relationship with other people? Do I really wanna see them restored to a relationship with God himself, or do I just wanna condemn them? And, and, and to be honest with you, like I think that, that sometimes in my life and sometimes probably in your life, our only motivation for confrontation is to let someone know that they're wrong and that we're right, that they messed up and we all know about it. We just want them to feel bad. But this isn't biblical confrontation. Biblical confrontation, the goal is restoration. And let me just, let me just explain this to you. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost done if you guys wanna come on up. L- look at this thought. Confrontation is not about me being right and them being wrong. It's about God growing both of us. It's about God growing both of us. So we don't know how the rest of the story played out. You know, it's interesting that Paul, uh, I think because he's respecting the dynamic of his uh, friendship with Peter, he doesn't disclose all of those details. But, but when, we read, when we read the New Testament, like we, we have this little clue that I love. There's a letter that Peter wrote years after this this. this uh, uh, issue he had with Paul, this, this uh, confrontation he had with Paul. It's, uh, it's, it's the letter of Second Peter that we're familiar with. And in Second Peter, uh, he includes a line. It actually gives us a little insight into their relationship and how it evolved from that confrontational moment in Galatians 2. Look at this with me. In Second in Peter 3.15, Peter writes this. He says, and remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. I, I love that, by the way. Then he goes on, he says, this is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. 
This is years after the fact. Giving us maybe some insight into how their relationship evolved after this moment of confrontation. Because many years later, Peter is referring to the man who opposed him to his face as his beloved brother who is wise. You know what this sounds like right here? You know what this sounds like? It sounds like restoration. It sounds like restoration. It sounds like two people who went at it. It was uncomfortable. It was frustrating. And Peter comes to this conclusion, whether it was then or whether it was years later, that Paul was actually right. That Peter wasn't actually being the person that he wants to be. And that his friends saw that in him and he called out his, his greatness. And, and, the, and, and, and I think about this story because the repentance that Peter needed might not have happened without Paul. Like this is how the body of Christ is meant to work. We're meant to have these kinds of relationships in our life that, that, that are close enough that can see us and know, man, if we're on the right track or not, and to call us back to our greatness, to call us back to the right path. I, I don't think that this repentance in Peter's life would have, would have happened as quickly had Paul not been a good friend and stepped in and done that. And so I guess the question is like, what about, what about you? And we've all got issues in our lives that we need to address. No, nobody's perfect in here. And so what issues are in your life right now? What issues exist in your life right now that if no one ever calls you out on them, you'll never address them? You'll never address them. Do you have enough close relationships with fellow Jesus followers who know your life inside and out, who know you so well that they know the kind of person you wanna be and they see the kind of person you are and they are close enough to you in proximity to notice that there's a difference between the two? There's like, come on, man. Come on. Like, let's, let's step it up. Let's step it up. How can I help? Do you have anybody in your life who has enough trust with you to say something? I think what can happen, you know, like, when we hate confrontation, I mean, so many of you, like, this message is probably giving you uh, anxiety because you're just, like, way anti-confrontation. Uh, you avoid it like the plague, and I get that. I understand that. Um, A lot of that just comes out of like our need to please people and we don't like it when people are upset with us and so we just can't handle the confrontation. But I think that what can happen because of these emotions is we, we then isolate ourselves, right? Like we only go so deep or only go so far in relationships with other people to the point that no one is close enough to challenge us to grow. No, no one's close enough to call us out. No one's close enough to like, to, to, to compel us to a higher standard to compel us to really live better and live into the way of Jesus. And so we gotta just ask ourselves this morning, am I confrontable? And do I got people in my life, like strategically, that I've sought, that I've tried to put around me, and that God has providentially brought into my life who can, who can call me to the, to, to the greater, who can call me to my best? Would you stand with me this morning? I think it's time that we maybe lay down that phrase, only God can judge me. What do you say? What do you say? Maybe we should turn to somebody next to us and say, you can judge me if you want. You can judge me if you want. 
Oh, but only if you know me. <laughs> and only if it's about the right things. And only if it's in the right way. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in this house. I thank you for your spirit that has been uh, so faithful this morning to be present, uh, to, to, to uh, inhabit this, this house, inhabit the praises of your people, God. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that has been moving powerfully, touching our hearts, affecting our lives. God, I pray for a deep sense of just openness to your word and to your spirit this morning. God, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be confronted first by you. God, I pray that we would be people who all we really care about is living uh, this Christian life out the way we are intended. And so God, in deep humility, I pray a spirit of humility into this room that would allow us to to look at ourselves uh, accurately, to have the, 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 the desire to grow in our faith. And Lord, I pray over every single person here today, God, where maybe there is a lack of, of true Jesus-centered friendships and relationships, where there is maybe, maybe a sense of loneliness because they just, just aren't sure, man, who really has my back? Who's really my person? Who's really the one who's chasing after the kingdom? Uh, and, and who's really chasing the way of Jesus with me in this life? God, I pray for just a breakthrough. I pray for a, a friendship miracle in this room for some people, God. I pray that we would just have the, the desire and the humility to go after these things, knowing we can't, we can't live this life on our own. And so Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, confront us. Holy Spirit, change us. Do something in us that we can't do on our own. God, I pray that we would be people who wouldn't just shrink back from confrontation, but we would allow our lives to be confronted. God, I thank you that you, you, can, you can't offend a humble man And so I pray for just a sense of humility in all of us that just refuses to go offended when maybe there's something pointed out in us that that we're not too excited about being pointed out. Father, search us. I thank you that that David wrote so well, search me and know me. Seek out my heart to see if there's any offensive way in me. And so Holy Spirit, come and shine that light. Shine that big light on us, God, and, and, and expose anything in us that needs to be exposed so we can just be the men and the women that you called us to be, oh God. We thank you so much. We thank you so much, God. We thank you for the standard of scripture. And I thank you for the model and the perfect design of the church. And it's, in, it, it, it's designed to kind of to pull us up to that standard, to pull us up to the way of Jesus when we're not there, when we've kind of fallen down, when we've gotten off track. I thank you for the beauty of what the church is intended to be. God, not, not, not judgment that's, that's meant to condemn, that's meant to make people feel bad, that's meant to make people feel like they're less than or whatever. God, I, I, I pray just, just for the rejection on that spirit of elitism that says I'm better than you, but Lord, just humility in here that says, man, I wanna be called out. I wanna be called up to the higher way, to the better way. And so Holy Spirit, do that in us today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen.